This is Rabbi Josh Uter. Today on the Utopia Podcast, how do we as a Jewish community deal with flawed and fallen rabbis? Today is October 17th, 2014. Uh, for many of you who are out there, this is the second day of Shemini Atzeret, otherwise known as Simchat Torah. Uh, I happen to be in Israel right now, having made Aliyah this past August, uh, and as such, keeping one day Yom Tov. So putting the time to hopefully good use uh, with a class that um, I had actually thought to give uh, when we were doing Daf Yomi. But recent news um, sort of uh, compelled me to accelerate the timetable. Uh, the topic today is how do we as a society deal with flawed and fallen rabbis? Uh, for those who have been following the news or if you're listening to this a long time after this is recorded, um, it was announced really right before uh, the Chag of a scandal involving Rabbi Barry Freundel of uh, Kesher Israel in um, uh, Washington, D.C., um, based on the allegations that have come out so far, and I should stress that right now, uh, there are only allegations. Uh, there's nothing that's been uh, dealt with in court, uh, but it has been alleged that Rabbi Freundel had been uh, secretly taping women in the mikvah and other allegations that came out by uh, the Jewish channel and uh, Stephen I. Weiss uh, involved him going off and having, well, implicitly having an affair with someone. A little bit sketchy on the details, but um, can read more about that in the source sheets. Uh, this is a subject which unfortunately comes up a great deal, um, or at least a lot more often than it should. Really not a great deal, but any time is more often than it should. And that is, what do you do when you have a rabbi, a rabbinic figure, someone who is looked up to, someone who's respected, someone who you've learned from, and it comes out that they behaved unethically, perhaps criminally. And what are you supposed to do with all of that? Particularly, what do you do with all the Torah? And it's a question that comes up not infrequently, especially, again, if an individual had significant contributions to their particular Jewish community. Um, for just a few recent examples, um, some of you might know of uh, Baruch Lanner, um, the big scandal uh, that the Jewish Week broke in uh, the year 2000 that really uh, highlighted um, abuse in the Jewish community. Uh, there was the case of Leib Tropper, uh, where it was reported in 2009 uh, that he um, well, basically was soliciting a potential convert for sexual favors and was caught on tape doing so. Uh, Mati Elon, uh, in 2003, uh, was indicted uh, uh, with, uh, in, according to the Jewish press, indecent assault uh, and a decent assault against a minor, using his position as the victim's mentor. Uh, and in fact, there was a friend of mine pointed me to a, um, a thread on LookJed, which is a uh, mailing list um for Jewish educators that dealt specifically with the question of Mati Elon, uh, where someone even asked, well, do we get rid of his books from the Beit Midrash? Um, 
you had Michael Broyd uh, from 2013 uh, caught in the sock puppeting uh, scandal, also broken by Stephen I. Weiss um, at the Jewish Channel. Uh, Yeshiva University uh, has been involved in stuff uh, most recently. Well, I shouldn't say most recently. Uh, most in, recently in the news uh, were the was the case with uh, George Finkelstein and, and Macy Gordon, um, who were forced out amongst various stuff which you can read about uh why he was just in the news because uh, the victims um uh, tried unsuccessfully uh to sue uh yeshiva university for damages involved in the cover-up uh you have barry freundel as we mentioned um but even aside from all of that you know even before these recent scandals you have people out there who will look at someone uh like rabbi shlomo karlebach now shlomo karlebach you know is undoubtedly um, contributed heavily to Jewish culture and Jewish society. Uh, forget Hasidu, just the tunes of the melodies alone. Um, but by all the stories I've heard, even if half of them are true, uh, by today's standards, he would be in jail. Um, there was an article I saw on Lilith.org, uh, summarizes some of the accusations saying, among the many people Lilith spoke with, Nearly all had heard stories of Rabbi Karlebach's sexual indiscretions during more than four decades, during more than a four decade rabbinic career. Sorry, I just copied and pasted here. That didn't make sense. Uh, spiritual leaders, psychotherapists, and others report numerous incidents from playful propositions to actual sexual contact. Most of the allegations include middle of the night sexually charged phone calls and unwanted attention or propositions. Others, which have been slower to emerge, relate to sexual molestation. Now, you read this, and again, assuming that these are true, what do these do with all of those tunes and all of the contributions that these individuals made? Now, granted, of uh, the things that I mentioned here, you could say one of these things is not like the other, particularly um, you know, the Broid uh, situation with sock puppeting, compared to the rest, not nearly as severe. However, um, it did, in fact, affect his credibility. Uh, at least amongst the um, uh, the colleagues that I had in particular um, uh, last fall in 2013, NYU held a summit on Aguna. And every time Rabbi Broid was mentioned regarding his tripartite agreement, uh, the snickers were audible and his name became somewhat of a punchline. Um, even though, again, what he did compared to pretty much everything else that I mentioned here involves some sort of uh, sexual misconduct, um, if not outright assault. Um, you know, you really cannot compare those two in terms of severity. But I can say that his followers and people who really looked up to him and really respected him were no less, well, well, they, they were very disheartened. Uh, the reaction I've been getting from friends and colleagues uh, regarding Freundel has been you know, less you know, feeling let down and more of outright anger um, because many have actually worked with him and many have even sent uh, converts to work with him. Uh, so there's a great deal of feeling of betrayal there. Um, but what are we supposed to do with all of this? Meaning you, li I listed a bunch of names who can argue uh, who contributed what to which society, uh, Mottier Lone, 
um, probably held a lot more uh, had a lot more influence in Israel than he did in America. So for Americans, it might not be such a big deal, but in Israel and the religious Zionist communities, it was a big deal. Uh, Michael Broad might not have mattered much to certain Haredim, but to the modern Orthodox world, mattered mattered a pretty big deal. And what do you do with Shlomo Karlbach, whose influence is really um, uh, indescribable? Um, now, on one hand, you know you can find a whole bunch of examples of secular uh, people who have uh, secular scholars who lived really lousy lives. For a wonderful book on these examples, uh, um, a wonderful book for some examples. Uh, the historian Paul Johnson has a book called Intellectuals, and he goes through some of the most influential minds. And showing how they were really, really bastards in their personal lives. There's no other way to describe it. Uh, not just hypocrites, but in some cases, outright scumbags in terms of how they operated. Um, and yet, they're still taught and people still learn from that. Um, Steve Jobs is another great example. If anyone read, read, uh, read the biography, uh, forget him being a jerk to coworkers. The first uh, third of the book about his early life with the founding of Apple, uh, the way he treated not just people, but specifically his ex-wife, you wonder why is this guy venerated given, you know, this is how he acted. On the other hand, well, he gave us a lot of shiny toys and who knows whether or not he actually did Teshuvah, although he seemed to have been a very difficult person to deal with. So what are we supposed to do with this? That's the question that I want to address today. Not in terms of, incidentally, midot. I mean, I think we can all agree that, yes, you should not misrepresent yourself on the internet. I think we can all agree you really shouldn't sexually assault other people. We're not talking about whether or not what the rabbis did was appropriate or defending. It's more a question of what is the reaction that we should take, we ought to take, we can take. And how do we balance these conflicting issues of, um, I guess, morality in a sense in the Torah? So first, I think it's important to manage our expectations. Uh, we learn in Kohelet, Parakzayin Pasukhaf, Ecclesiastes 7.20, Ki adam ein tzaddik ba'aretz asher ya'aset tova lo yecheta. There's no one on earth who is righteous, who does only good and does not sin. Uh, we say in Psalms 103.3, If you, Lord, keep a record of our sins, Lord, who could stand? It's important to know that no matter how great of a rabbi or how great of a religious leader you have or you think you have, that person has done some sin or done at some point in their lives something that they were not supposed to do. Now, granted, we can talk about differences of severity. We can talk about uh, was someone else harmed, meaning there are certain things that someone does where it's something personal. Let's say someone develops, um, ah, you know what, I'm not going to even give examples for this because people can argue, oh, you're really hurting other people. Let's say there are certain things that people do to themselves and exclusively to themselves. Uh, sometimes they're called victimless crimes. And other times, you actually do have victims. Maybe people want to make a distinction with that, and that happens. But it's important to realize what are the expectations that we have from our leaders. Perfection is not appropriate because people are people. We're all human. We're all flawed. Everyone has done something that you know, maybe they wish they could take back, or maybe they don't even realize they wish they could take back. But it's important to keep that in mind. Um, Rambam has a, 
uh, often quoted piece from his introduction to Shemona Prakim, uh, where he writes, Ushma emet mimisha amara, that you should accept the truth from wherever source it proceeds, is the translation they have in front of you, but it's really, you accept the truth from whoever says it. Based on this Rambam, you might think that, well, truth is agnostic, meaning we don't really care about who said it. If it's right, it's right, and we don't necessarily need to worry about the source. That's an approach. Um, but as we're going to see, maybe things are a little bit different when it comes to Torah, meaning Rambam here uh, talks about ha'emet, right, is truth, and he is discussing here in uh, context, citing works of philosophers, uh, in addition to works of Midrashim and Gemara, in the context of something being emet, it's being truth. Does that apply to Torah as well? Well, we'll see. We may or may not have some answers with that. Um, next on, the next source I have in the source sheet here, um, reading from uh, number 11a, is we have some guidelines in terms of what actually makes a competent teacher, meaning someone from whom you should look to learn from uh, to begin with. Uh, one is a line that people might be aware of from Pirkei Avot, um, Hillel, or at least said in the name of Hillel, lo, uh, from Mishnah Avot 2.5, Loha Kapdan Melamed. Someone who is impatient cannot teach and should not be a teacher. Uh, Gemarin Erevin um, has a little bit of an uh, extrapolation on what exactly that means. So Rabbi Akiva uh, says, when is it deduced that, from where is it deduced that a man must go teaching his pupil until he has mastered the student? From scripture where it says, and thou, and teach thou to the children of Israel. And where is it deduced that it must be taught until the students are well versed in it? From the scripture which says, put it in their mouths. And once it is inferred that it's also your duty to explain to him the reasons, as has been said, now these are the ordinances which you shall place before him. According to uh, Rebbe Akiva here, the rabbi has an obligation to sit and explain it, everything to his students until they actually know it. That requires a great deal of patience um, for some more than others. I mean, it depends on your own personal disposition and the nature of the class that you're teaching. Uh, I should also point out here that there are other gemaras that talk about the obligations of the student uh, and rabbi, how rabbi should only take students who are hagun or hogan, or, uh, those who are appropriate um, uh, in, uh, to be taught. Um, but it's important for a rabbi on one hand to have patience. Otherwise you really shouldn't go to him or at least at all, or should not be in that profession. We'll see a little bit more about that later. Um, but you also have, you know, components of discipline and how that's supposed to be done. Uh, Gemara Bava Batra, uh, or Shmuel Ben Shilat says, when you punish a pupil, only hit him with a shoe latchet. The attentive one will read of himself, and if one is inattentive, put him next to a diligent one. Uh, the way that Rambam uh, cites this uh, in his book on Halakha, in Hilchot Talmud Torah 2.2, a teacher may employ co uh, corporal punishment to cast fear upon the students. However, he should not beat them cruelly like an enemy. Therefore, he should not beat them with a rod or a staff, but rather with a small strap. 
Now, you can read this and apply to today's standards. Wait a second. According to Allah, are you allowed to beat a student? Well, partially, I suppose. According to the Gemara, technically, yes. However, um, I mean, we can, I'll refer uh, the listeners to Dina de Mohuta Dina. Uh, today, I would say that the answer would be unequivocally no, because you have a whole bunch of civil laws that come into play here. Um, but at least the point is when a teacher does do the disciplining, um, even so, there has to be a certain degree of patience behind it, meaning teachers will use scare tactics. There's a difference in using scare tactics to, say, put the fear of God into kids, so to speak, and actually hating the students and actually not wanting to deal with them. And from my own personal experience, there are some people who do go into teaching who don't actually like teaching uh, and don't actually like kids. Um, to tell you just one story... Um, when my first year in Smicha, uh, Yeshiva University, we had to take these classes, which used to be called SR and the name changed to RTP stood for rabbinic training program. And one of the first classes of these that we had, um, one of the, uh, the person who was leading the class asked, um, you know, what are some of the challenges? It was a segment on Chinuch, on education. And he asks, well, what are some of the challenges that you have in Chinuch? So I raised my hand and I said, competency. What do you mean by that? He said, well, you come out of smicha, you spend a lot of time studying Gemara, studying Halacha, but once you get to a high school, you teach whatever the principal wants you to teach. Just because, And he says, yeah, you know, you might, coming out of smicha, know how to teach Gemara. Doesn't mean you know how to teach Navi. You don't teach books of prophets or other aspects of, uh, uh, of Jewish text. One guy in the back raised his hand and he said, quote, Come on, how hard could it be to read Yoshua and Rashi to a bunch of fourth graders? I have no idea what happened to that person, uh, but the person who was leading the class gave him a stare of death and this look on how in the world did we admit you to the Smicha program. And a friend of mine who was sitting next to me was going ballistic. He was jumping out of his chair, really could hold him still, because he actually took education seriously, whereas the first guy clearly didn't. Uh, and if that would be your attitude towards, well, here's what educating kids is, well, you probably shouldn't be in front of a classroom. Um, so at any rate, you know, right off the bat, we have a few things in terms of traits over what should a teacher be and what should a teacher um, or how should a teacher teach that might in fact affect whether or not this is a person that you could or should learn from. Now, let's turn to the Gemara in Chagiga, uh, 15b. Uh, this is the story about Acher, and I'm not going to go through the whole story. Um, a great deal of it really seems to be kind of apocryphal, by which I mean um, whether or not we can take a Gadot as historical fact. There are certain things that come out of this narrative that seem to be almost quasi-polemical, such as there's a line that says, well, some people say that um, Acher, uh, whose real name was Elisha Benavuya, killed a kid. You know, so some say that he did that. Is that historical? Kind of hard to believe. Um, I'm not going to get into um, what Acher did uh, right now, although we can argue that could be relevant in terms of uh, was the problem purely theological or was this problem a matter of midot? Um but it's more of a question, again, for what do you do with learning from someone who is, again, either a flawed or, in this particular case, a, a fallen individual? So I'm only going to do some of the excerpts that relate to that very specific question. 
So in the mix, midst of this discussion about Acher and his life um, and all the stuff that he did, his daughter once came before Rabbi and asked him, Oh, master, support me. He asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, I am Acher's daughter. Said he, Are there any, any of his children left in the world? Behold, it is written, He shall have neither son nor son's son among the people, nor any remaining in his dwellings. She answered, quote, Zechor letorato ve'altis kor ma'asav. Remember his Torah and don't remember his deeds. Forthwith a fire came down and enveloped Rabbi's bench. Thereupon Rabbi wept and said, If it be so on account of those who dishonor her, how much more so on account of those who honor her. According to this one passage, there is a clear explicit distinction, um, or at least conveyed in this particular passage again not quite sure about the histor the historicity or the historical accuracy of anything here but at least in terms of the moral message that is trying to be conveyed by this gemara the operative line here is remember his torah don't remember his deeds according to this passage there is a clear distinction between what someone does and what someone teaches such that the actions, I don't want to say shouldn't affect it altogether, but should not be disregarded completely. Um, yeah, should not be disregarded completely. What exactly are we supposed to do with it in the calculus? That's a little bit hard to tell, um, but at least the chiluk, the distinction is important. The Gemara continues, But how did Rebbe Meir learn Torah at the mouth of Acher? Behold, Rabbi Barchana, Bar Barchana, I'm sorry, said that Rav Yochanan said, What is the meaning of the verse? For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the Lord at his law at his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. This means that if the teacher is like an angel of the Lord of hosts, they should seek the law at his mouth. But if not, they should not seek the law at his mouth. So according to Rav Yochanan, the language of the Gemara is, Im domeharav lamalach, Hashem tzvaot, yivakshu Torah mipihu. Vim lav, al yivakshu Torah mipihu. According to Rav Yochanan, unless your teacher is on a level in some way, like an angel of God, then you seek Torah from him. But if he is not, if he does not reach that very high standard, you don't go to learn Torah from him. Seemingly, I know, might even uh, contrast with uh, the Acher's daughter. But here, Rav Yochanan is saying, nope, you cannot make such a distinction. Rav Yochanan, uh, sorry, Reish Lakish, his student, tried justifying Rav Meir. And he said, Rav Meir found a verse and expounded it as follows. According to uh, the Pasuk, Eshkach v'tarash hatos nechav shma devarei it says, Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise. Apply your heart unto my knowledge. It doesn't say unto their knowledge, meaning the individual rabbi, but rather to my knowledge, meaning God. The distinction here that Rav Meir, uh, that Rish Lakish is sort of putting in the mouth of Rav Meir at this point, is 
Here's a possible answer, and I think it's fascinating that it's Rish Lakish who first comes up, or we're given an answer by Rish Lakish. For those uh, who um, are unfamiliar with the story, Rish Lakish uh, was initially a robber and tried to mug Rav Yochanan, uh, and Rav Yochanan said, well, you know, if you uh, do tshuva and start learning Torah with me, I'll give you my daughter. So here, according to the actual statement by Rav Yochanan, maybe Rish Lakish wouldn't have made the cut. And here he's providing a justification in the name of Rav Meir that you can make a distinction. Because when you learn Torah from someone, is it really that? Is it really that person that you're giving respect to? Or is it really Lida'ati? Or is it really God's Torah that's supposed to come out ahead? This might seem to be more like Rambam from Shmona Prakim, if you accept the truth from whom you hear, here it's you're accepting God's truth because it's not the Torah of an individual. It's the Torah of God. And you get the Torah of God wherever you can get the Torah of God. Rabbi Hanina quoted a different verse. Um, Rabbi Hanina decided it from here. Hearken, O daughter, and consider incline your ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house, etc. Uh, but these verses contradict each other. There is no contradiction. In the one case, scripture refers to an adult, in the other to a child. And Sincino explains helpfully as an adult, unlike a child, uh, can use discrimination and avoid the teacher's wrongdoing. Hence, the last two verses permit him to learn even from a heretic. That there's an interesting point. Um, I had a brief conversation with a friend of mine who teaches high school. And she was making that distinction, too, that for high school kids, um, she wasn't even using in terms of, you know, knowledge being able to separate, but high school kids often take things, uh, can take sources as actual role models. So this, I think, could be a fascinating distinction for today as well. When you talk about quoting, <clears throat> excuse me, controversial, or not controversial figures, that even lightens up, these flawed or these fallen rabbis, um, even if you're going to say that what they have to teach is valuable, well, when do you actively, you know, start teaching that? It's one thing to teach it, let's say, in a college course. It's another thing in a high school. Um, I, my uncle uh, I, uh, it was a former high school principal, and he had one of the most brilliant lines on Jewish education. Um, my uncle's uh, Rabbi Stuart Grant, and he said, when you teach college and above, you're teaching a subject. When you're teaching high school and below, you're teaching a student. And I think that sums up, I shouldn't say sums up, I think that is a really brilliant statement to make on the differences of education. And perhaps that does come up with whom you decide to cite and why. Anyway, Gemara continues. When Rav Divi came to Bavel, he said, in the West, they say, uh, Rav Meir ate the date and threw the kernel away, meaning he took the good stuff from Acher and disregarded the other stuff. Rav expounded, what is the meaning of the verse? I went down to the Garden of Nuts to look at the green plants of the valley, etc. Why are scholars likened to the nut? To tell you that just as in the case of the nut, though it be spoiled with mud and filth, yet are its contents not contemned, so do in the case of a scholar, although he may have sinned, his Torah is not contemned, or contaminated, whatever it is, or made disgusting. So according to this, you've got Rav Dimi said that Rav Meir took the good stuff, threw away the bad. Rav has said, scholars, even if they might do something wrong or something happens, their Torah always is maintained. Okay. Moving along, though, we see that there could be, in fact, still a consequence. Rav Barshila once met Elijah, Eliyahu Navi. He said to him, 
what is the Holy One, blessed be he, doing? He answers, he utters the traditions of the names of all the rabbis, but the name of Rebbe Meir he does not utter. So Rabbi asked him why. Because he learnt traditions at the mouth of Acher. Said Rabbi to him, but, but why? Rav Meir found a pomegranate, he ate the fruit within it and threw the peel away. He only took the good stuff. He answered, now he says, Mayor, my son says, when a man suffers, to what expression does the Shina give utterance? My head is heavy, my arm is heavy. If the Holy One, blessed be he, is thus grieved over the blood of the wicked, how much more so over the blood of the righteous that is shed? It's a difficult passage here, um, which we can interpret in many different ways. At the very basic level, it appears that even though Rav Meir might have been justified, there was still, or they found some justification for him. It doesn't mean it wasn't without some form of a consequence. The exact details are a bit unclear. So from this story regarding how we relate to Acher, at the very least, we've got differences of opinion. Uh, if we count them up, more seem of one, the one-sided, more seem to be along the lines of the content uh, is more important than the behavior of the rabbi, Yet we've got others that seem to contradict that as well. So at the very least, we might have a machloket, a dispute. I think that there could be a way of resolving uh, the dispute, or at least if not resolving a certain path um, towards at least understanding what might be appropriate practically. Um, based on this next section I have here, which I describe as halachot of replacing a teacher, um, by which I mean... There are examples here about in the Gemara about when is it appropriate or when is it okay for someone to substitute one teacher for another. And by substitute, I don't mean you find another teacher. Uh, it's actually Gemara at the beginning of uh, Masechet of Odazara. You're supposed to have more than one teacher um, for a whole bunch of pedagogic reasons we're not going to get into. By replacing, I mean making a conscious decision, not just, oh, I learned a lot with one person, I still treat this person as a rabbi, now I'm going to learn from someone else in addition, but rather, I'm making a conscious decision not to learn with one, and instead going to learn with someone else. So here's one example that uh, also came across in Dafyomi. So for those, you know, who like putting down Dafyomi, let me say that, you know, having been doing it, I'm not sure how much I remember, but every now and again, I find gems that might be relevant just to stuff like this. So let me put in a plug for that. So Gemara and Ta'ani 24a. Um, you had a case where uh, Rav Yossi, well, Rav Ashi and Rav Yossi Bar Abed, um were sitting in front, they were having a halachic discussion, and Ravashi asked him, did you not frequent the discourses? Were you not a student of Rav Yossi um, uh, Deman Yukoret? And he replied, Rav Yossi Barabin replied, yeah, he was. Ravashi said, why'd you leave him and come here? So the answer was, how could a man who showed no mercy to his son and daughter show mercy to me? and gives a couple of examples where, uh, one, he pretty much cursed his son and he cursed his daughter uh, for reasons that I have in the source sheets. Uh, the case of the daughter was even was even like weirder and more notable. I'll do that one quickly. What happened to his daughter? He had a beautiful daughter. One day he saw a man boring a hole in a fence so that he might catch a glimpse of her. He said to the man, what is the meaning of this? And the man answered, Master, if I am not worthy enough to marry her, may I not be worthy enough to catch a glimpse of her? Thereupon he exclaimed, My daughter, you are a source of trouble to mankind. Return to the dust so that men may not sin because of you. So a guy had a lustful crush on his daughter, and instead of saying, Dude, get away from my daughter, he instead blamed his daughter. So such a person, 
was um, you, uh, you have uh, Rav Yossi Ben Avin basically said, yeah, I, I can't learn from you. This might go against what we saw earlier on about Lo Kapdan Milamed. And here he makes a conscious decision. I can't study with you because of your midot and how you act and how you treat people. To the point where you can say, well, isn't his Torah good enough? Well, he was able to apparently go elsewhere. Gemara from Barvabatra 21a. Reva also said, if we have a teacher, um, I'm reading this in Sino translation again, who gets on with the children, and there is another who can get on better, mean, uh, we do not replace the first by the second, for fear that the second, when appointed, will become indolent, since Sino adds uh, having no competition to fear. Rav Dimi from Naharda, however, held that he should exert himself still more if appointed, for rather the jealousy of scribes increases wisdom. Uh, the Shulchan Aruch, uh, just using two of the things here, uh, first from Yoridea 245.18, uh, says, if there's already a teacher of children and someone who comes along who is better than he is, we replace the first with the second. When it comes to Talmud Torah, we don't believe in things like tenure, you always get the best person available. Uh, Shulchan Aruch Yeridea 246.8 says, A rabbi who does not walk in the proper path, Even if he's a wise sage and the entire nation needs him, We do not learn from him until he returns to good. So what does all of this mean? At the basic level, We've got a bunch of different sources, and if you want to get indignant over anybody in particular, you could. Uh, if you want to defend people and say, oh, we'll take the good and not the bad, you could. More than likely, people are going to do their own moral calculus, where certain offenses will be more offensive to some as opposed to others. Um, and there may not be a rhyme or reason for this. It may not necessarily follow a logic. People, or it might even be conditional on a personal relationship um, that someone might have had any number of factors. I don't expect any shred of consistency in terms of how people uh, might approach this in practice. I have a couple of theories here, though, based on all of these sources. The first is perhaps there could be a difference between learning from someone directly and learning from someone's texts. By which I mean, one of the th an important component in halakha, or at least in a time of chazal, wasn't just the teachings, but observational. How does a person act? How does a person implement um, the Torah that he teaches? You're not reading out of a book. When you learn Torah from a person, you're learning somewhat holistically. I found on many occasions in my own experience, both in yeshiva and in the academic world, students frequently pick up character traits of their rebbeim, uh, usually for the worse, meaning um, I know some teachers and professor, professors and rabbis who are very arrogant or come across as very arrogant, and the students pick up their arrogance in terms of how they talk, putting people down, this guy's an idiot, stuff like that. Now, while the academics in the Rosh Yeshiva might actually know stuff, uh, the students don't, but they just pick up the very dismissive attitude. So that could be one component there, as opposed to reading texts. I mean, sometimes you can have very arrogantly written texts, and sometimes you don't. Maybe there could be a distinction there, because the midot might be separate. Although, to be fair, 
you really, I shouldn't say you really, uh, there are plenty of examples of people being arrogant jerks in print as well. Um, listen, you're listening to this off the internet, so you're probably online, you've seen this. But I think there's also something else that might come into play here, and that is capable substitution. Here's what I mean. You have Gemara's, the last ones that we dealt with, um, describe things uh, along the lines of swapping out one teacher for another. Let's assume that all things being equal, do you have to use the information from the fallen or flawed rabbi? So let me give an example from the ones that I mentioned. Uh, rabbi Michael Broid um, has done really a tremendous amount of scholarship. Um, something that uh, he does, he's, whatever you may think of him personally, you might not agree. You might not agree with his conclusions for what he writes. But you can't say that he doesn't do his homework. The very basic level, even if you dislike him personally, even if you dislike his entire halachic method, his articles are really fantastic bibliographies because he does a whole lot of research, very meticulous, lays it all out in front of you. So what do you do? Do you use that? Do you not use that? Well, if someone did a better job on a particular topic, you can use that instead of Broid. But if someone didn't do it, if he is the expert and no one's topped him on it, well, then may, you might be stuck doing that. With Mutti alone, uh, and honestly, I have not read, I don't think anything by Mutti alone come to think of it to really pass judgment, but let's throw it out there anyway. Um, he's big in the religious Zionist world. Now, there are quite a few dozen religious Zionist rabbis. Do you need to teach Mutti alone specifically in order to convey certain ideals of religious Zionism? I hope not, because religious Zionism existed long before Mutti alone, and will probably exist long afterwards. So, do you lose anything by not teaching Mutti alone? Well, maybe if you liked an idea or two, fine. But unless you you may be able to do a calculus of is that Torah really irreplaceable? Uh, is it something that you really can't do without? Or from a pedagogic perspective, can you get the same point across, be it Torah or Machshava? By finding someone else who does that, or someone else who gives you um, something similar, something more useful. Again, you can argue, well, you know, it's calculus of who really is irreplaceable and who isn't. That might be subjective. But for educators, it might be an interesting question to ask first, where you have a text or you've got something, you've got Torah by a particular person, and you're not sure whether or not it's appropriate to teach. Well, think what is the point that I'm trying to teach here? Can I get that point across? I'd also like to add that, you know, now that, you know, the core of that stuff is done, in part, I think part of the problem regarding these questions is how much people invest in the personality of the rabbi. Um, meaning, there's a, I've written about this before in terms of, you know, the difference between kavod harav of treating a rabbi with respect and investing too much of your essence with a person such that when he falls down, everything else falls down with him. Uh, and let me just conclude here with a pet peeve of mine that I've complained about in a lot of cases, and I don't think anything is going to change. And that is, uh, I mean, I, actually, I should say that. I, I spoke about it in Shul. You might have heard on some other podcasts. There is no, none of the, actually, let me rephrase that, none of the major smicha-granting organizations that I know of give any sort of classes or any sort of requirements on the halachot of being a Rav. What do I mean by that? 
If you're going to medical school, presumably you have to take a class in medical ethics. You go to law school, you have to take a course in legal ethics and professional ethics. They're halachot of how a rav is supposed to act and how a rav is supposed to behave. People know about kavod rav. People know, oh, you're supposed to honor the rabbis. Sure. Um, I actually even gave a podcast on this, I think, uh, an introduction to rabbinic ethics. Still, no smicha program, at least why you doesn't, Hove Torah doesn't, um, Rabbanut of Israel doesn't. No one actually gives a class on what are not just the professional ethics of being a rabbi, but the halachot of the professional ethics of being a rabbi. These aren't just nice things to do. These are actual halachot about how a Tamil Chacham is supposed to act. Now, of course, we can disagree and point fingers and stuff like that, but it's not even taught. And if you don't teach it, it's never going to even be considered. And I really think that it's imperative, especially today, uh, with all the scandals that we have, uh, especially with a great deal of distrust at rabbis and rabbinic colleagues from people I've seen these and what people have complained to me, for all smicha granting institutions to start taking these set of halachot seriously enough. Because, you know, you can argue about a whole lot of things with halacha, but this is halacha too. How a rabbi is supposed to act and how a rabbi is supposed to behave. And if you approach your position with a sense of entitlement, with a sense that I am the rav, I am the power, and I expect everyone to submit to me simply because I have the office, with no sense of responsibility or reciprocity, you're only going to have many more of these scandals and many more tragedies down the line. Hopefully, this will be the last one. I doubt that it will be, but, you know, for those who have been adversely affected, um, I wish you strength and koach in trying to deal with uh, whatever betrayals that you might have you might have faced. And for those wrestling with what do you do with the Torah, I'm not going to give you a definitive answer for that. Um, I think I've given a couple of different perspectives behind it. Um, but these are going to be very difficult questions. And if there are any rabbinim out there, don't think that just because you know you might be small time, you not, might not be a big name, that you can go and do what you want. The truth is, you really have no idea what you can, how much you influence any person. If that one person you might influence, you could be that representative of not just Judaism, but for a Jew, the representative of God. Uh, we studied a bit in the Chil Hashem that the definition of a Chil, one of the ways of identifying a Chil Hashem, if someone looks and says, oh, that's how a Ben Torah is supposed to act. <sighs> this is a very difficult, difficult topic. And hopefully, um, for those who have been wrestling with this question, might be able to provide at least a little bit of guidance, at least some perspective. Um, and hopefully, won't, again, won't have to deal with this for a while. And maybe next year, our Zman Simchatenu, our time of happiness, will actually be able to enjoy and really take full part in that Zman Simchatenu, um, where the only clouds that we have are the clouds for Geshem that we pray for, and not the clouds of scandal, which we hope to avoid.